I'm going to pray first because, uh, because of the fact that I feel like this is a, the text that we're supposed to, um, to be learning today and to, to hear from God from, um, I've been in it for a little bit, and now it's much bigger than what I can ever do. And so we need the Holy Spirit to help us to see Jesus this morning and to um, receive what it is he wants us to, to have. So let's pray. Lord God, we need your anointing this morning. We, need your, we want to experience your presence, Jesus. We want to know that you're here. We want to have a new sense on, on our hearts of your grace and how it works and changes our lives. We come in here and we, if we're honest, we admit there's so many areas that unravel within our lives. And we look forward to you now speaking truth to our hearts about how you put those things back together again and how you accept us the way we are. And we look forward to a conviction of, of uh, your word on our hearts, Lord. Be glorified here this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John 21, verse 1 says, I'm reading New Living Translation, later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. And this is how it happened. If you have an ESV, it says Jesus revealed himself again. This is how he revealed himself. So it's a pretty important spot. Several of the disciples were there, Simon, Thomas, Peter, and John, and um, Nathaniel. Verse 3, Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. And they said, we'll come too. So they all went out of the boat, and they caught nothing all night. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but his disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, fellows or children, literally, hey, bro, do you have any fish? That's the language. And they said, no. Then he said, well, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll catch them. And so they did. And they couldn't haul it in. They couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. And then the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work, jumped into the water, and headed to shore. And the others stayed in the boat and pulled the loaded net to shore as well. And there was only about a hundred yards from shore. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Bring some of the fish you just caught, Jesus said. And so Simon went aboard the, fit, uh, aboard the boat and dragged the net to shore. He's so impetuous at this point. He's like, uh, he's like Will Ferrell, like just running back and forth. So there was 153 large fish, and yet they ha the net hadn't torn. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. And none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And when Jesus served them bread and fish, this was the third time Jesus has appeared to his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. I think my main question as I look at this section of scripture is when you see Jesus looking at you or when you saw Jesus staring you in the eye, what did you see? Because there's such a humanity to this section of scripture to Jesus. And of course there's a... Uh, there's a real sense of the majesty and divinity of God. Um, matter of fact, um, one man by the name of 
professor, Reynold Price. He wrote a book called The Three Gospels. He's, he's from Duke University. And, and what he said is that there's so many details that there's not motivation to include unless they're an account of someone's memory. There's so many details here. There's a detail about Peter wrapping his coat to jump in the water, verse 7. Like you never jump in the water. You ever say, I'm going to jump in the water. Let me put my coat on. There's uh, the, the fact of the distance from shore. They were 100 yards from shore. The fact that they caught 153 fish. And what, what Reynolds Price asks is, if you read the Iliad, and you would never ask the question, or you never see Achilles, it would say of him, and he ate fish. There were 10 of them. Or... Um, he sat down and then he scratched his cheek and he started a conversation. It just didn't happen in fantasy language. They didn't use detail like that. And so because of that, this has to be not fantasy, it's somebody's memory. And of course, John is writing it. It's based off his memory. It's based on, and, and in his story, we see the humanity of Christ and the majesty of Christ. The majesty and divinity, of course, shows up when Jesus tells them to try the other side of the boat, and then they catch a ton of fish. There's almost this miracle sense of it. Or it says in verse 14, this was the third time he showed himself after he rose from the dead, after his resurrection. And so this real sense of the risen Lord Jesus having complete control and authority and power, and you know that's what actually sets the Christian faith apart from any other worldview, is that Jesus is alive, it claims. That the resurrection sets Jesus apart from any other so-called leader because he declares himself to be God. That Jesus himself is actually here in our presence right now. And he's actually right now, governing and ruling all of creation. That's what sets it apart from Confucianism and Buddhism and Oprahism and every other ism that there might be out there. But you don't just see the, the majesty of Christ. You see the real humanity, the real personness, the humanness of God becoming a man. And living amongst us. The fact that God would enjoy or call out to his friends and say, friends, have you caught anything? And then they catch fish and he prepares a beach fire for them. Like apparently God likes making beach fires. And he does a pretty good job. I don't know if you ever tried it. I mean, do they have matches? I don't, you think, I, seriously. But not just preparing a fire, but also cooking breakfast. Come and have some breakfast. Bring the fish you just caught. And I, almost being excited to share this meal with them. The reason why it's gathered around a meal is because the Christian faith, the essence of it is friendship. It's relationship. And I asked the question, what did you see when you looked into his eyes? When you see Jesus looking at you, what do you see in his eyes? Because for Peter, there might have been excitement, but there might have also been some fear. Because he had failed so bad. And he wonders now if it's all over for him. He wonders if this is the last time that he finally just messed it up so bad that there's no new beginning for his life. Some of us, we deal with fear. I deal with fear. I deal with fear of the future a lot. Some of us come in here and 
you find yourself afraid of the future as well. This passage actually speaks to that. It's been calming my own heart as I've been reading it. I think that that's why it's so special to me. Some of you are fearful because of the mistakes that you've made. Because of sins that you've repented of and gone back to and you come in here and you're just fearful. I, don't, I really don't know what God sees. When I look into his eyes, I'm not really sure. Author... Um, Brennan Manning says, the sorrow of, God's, of God lies in our fear of him, our fear of life, our fear of ourselves. He anguishes over our self-absorption and self-sufficiency. Richard Foster wrote, today the heart of God is an open wound of love. He aches over our distance and preoccupation. He mourns that we do not draw near to him. He grieves that we've forgotten him. He weeps over our obsession with muchness and manyness, and he longs for our presence. Maybe you fear being alone, a sense of loneliness, you're single, and you fear that. Or you're married, and you fear the sense of loneliness. Whatever it might be, the failures that you've made or the fear that you experience, this section speaks to us because it's about the restoration of a broken man. But it's not just the re re restoration of an individual it's actually restoration of community, an entire community. That's really the mission of God from Genesis to Revelation. In Genesis, you read where God says, I will make them my people and I will be your God. When God gave the law to his people, Israel, it was actually after they were freed he gave the law so that they could become a people. And of course, they couldn't keep it. We can't keep it. And so Jesus came so that he could uh, create and set up a counterculture. That's what he called in Matthew chapter 5, a city set on a hill, an alternate city, a counterculture, a different way of life, a people that are restored. But if we're to be restored... We have to understand the importance and the sense of community. Uh, I went with some friends recently to a conference. And at this conference, um, <clears throat> one, of, one of my friends that was there, he ran into a man that he hadn't seen in like three or four years. And this guy had, um, had horribly fallen into uh, moral failure. Um, it jeopardized his family, ruined his career, basically. He was a pastor and ruined his calling, he thought, many people thought. And we saw him in this city, and, and my friend just wanted to love him and, and kind of encourage him. And, and so the guy started to tell him, here's what I've been doing the past several years. Um, of course, I'm not in ministry. My wife has stayed with me. She's persevered with me. She's fought with me. Um, but I'm doing really well now. And just a very sense of humility in this man. And my friend just asked him, as respectful as possible, so can you just speak to me and my friends and tell me, like, what it was that took you down this road so that we don't have to go down that road? And the guy started crying. And he says, this is the first time in four years that anyone's ever asked me that question. God's restoring this man. 
And just like Peter, this man is a thread in the overall tapestry, in the fabric of what God is weaving together called a community of believers in Jesus Christ. He's restoring this man so this man can also restore and heal others. Jesus is the friend of the broken so that the broken can be a friend to others. Now, for us to understand how restoration happens, we have to understand this passage tells us there's a few, th- a few things that we need to see. Number one, we need to understand how restoration happens in community. Our sense of community, our understanding of community has to be restored. Notice it says in verse 1, Jesus appeared to the disciples as they were together. And this is how it happened. And then it lists off several of the disciples. And then Simon says, I'm going to go fishing. And then they said, we'll come too. The church is a really big deal to Jesus. There's a pervasive sense in our modern era which says, I'm into spirituality. I like Jesus. I don't like organized religion. I've been hurt by it. And I can completely understand because any relationship that you're in, if it's worth the investment, you're actually going to be hurt by because it's a relationship of sinful individuals. It doesn't excuse our sin, but, but what we do realize is that Jesus is actually pretty serious. He, he actually really cares about his church. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He talks of the importance of relationship, and it's actually within community that we practice a relationship with other people who are inside the church, with other believers, that we practice the one another's. Like you can't practice bearing one another's burdens or speaking the truth to one another or, or um, uh, um, being encouraged by one another by yourself. Like it really has to happen within the context of community. Fortunately, with the Enlightenment era, particularly the philosophy set forth by Rene Descartes in the 18th century, who coined the popular phrase, I think, therefore, I am the coquito ergo sum, that popularized a sense of myself. My time is my own. I protect my own rights. When Jesus is risen from the dead, why does he come back? Why does it say in verse 1, Jesus appeared again to his disciples, and this is how it happened. He appeared to them together. These men are together. The importance of that. The reality is, is that the world today, our, our gen, the modern generation, would rather see the gospel lived out than hear you and I talk about it primarily. There is a sense that we do talk about it, but the modern generation wants to see the gospel lived out, wants to see what happens when you and I sin against one another, when you and I need to repent with one another, when we have to bear one another's burdens and care for each other. That's how people understand the love and grace and realness of Christ. It's human. Um... Now, what happens here is we see the importance of them all being together inside. When it says, they said, we'll come too. I'm going fishing. So they all went out in the boat and they caught nothing all night. Big deal. They're going fishing together. Here's the point. They are in community within the normal rhythms of life. 
And it's people that you normally wouldn't hang out with. D.A. Carson says that the church is not made up primarily of, 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 of friends. It's made primarily up of enemies, people of all different races, all different social economic backgrounds. These guys that were in the boat together, they're completely different. But do you know what? Each of them carries a different sense, a different side of the heart of God. Thomas, he's a skeptic. John, he's, he's hyper-spiritual. Peter, he's, he's impetuous. Mary, who is in the group, not in the boat, she was a lover of Jesus. All of them have a different sense of the heart of God and can teach one another. Um, I was recently heard a, a, a friend of mine who had a, um, a community group, they call it, um, their small group that they meet together, which is an expression of the local body of Christ. And in this group, there was a woman. He says, you know, the people that I would choose to be in my group, I would never choose to be as friends. But God has put us together. For instance, there was a woman who, um, who, who, was, a, who was suffering from agoraphobia. I think that's the title for it, when you're afraid to leave your home except to go to work. Bound by fear, suffering from anxiety and a sense of, of loneliness and, and just fear. Because their community groups are neighborhood-centered, she happened to live in their neighborhood and she was a part of it. And what the leader of the group said was, you know, God has spoken to me so powerfully through this woman, far more than anybody else or any place else. And if this woman hadn't been a part of our community, I wouldn't have heard it in such a way. It's the power of God putting us together and being together. You need community. The reason being is because you're created in the image of God, who is a triune God, and God exists in community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, loving one another and deferring to one another. Because we're created in God's image, we desire community and we long for it. We all long for it. We all long to be a part. The problem is we begin to put our worth on, on the people that we're with and, and be selective in only saying, I'm only going to be with people that actually further who I am, further my agenda. Right here, it's a collection of many different individuals. But not just being together is the importance of community for people inside, but also outside the church. Look at what it says in verse 6. Jesus yells to them, verse 4, do you have any fish? They say no. Verse 6, then he said, throw out your net on the right side of the boat and you'll get some. And so they all did. And they couldn't haul in the nets because there were so many fish in it. And then the disciple that Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. I know it is. Why? It was because Jesus had called them to be fishers of men. He had called them to a great, to see their job as far more than just being fishermen. They were called to also reach people. And not just to exist in life, but to live life. To have a sense of, of mission and Jesus is forming and creating this community. He's weaving it together with broken lives and broken people. And so when Jesus says, cast your net on the right side of the boat, and the fish jump in, they immediately say, it's Jesus. I know what he's called me to. Something bigger than just my everydayness. They were still, some of them, going to be fishermen. Some of you are still going to be teachers. We, we need you to be teachers. We need you to, to see it as 
not just, Jesus is calling you to see it just as teaching kids, but also shepherding them. We need all types of, all types of different types of people who are going into work, into their life, and seeing it as, I'm fishing for people. And people outside need to see us inside living lives of community. The same community group that meets together in their neighborhood, they also worship together on Sunday mornings, by the way, um, take communion together, confess sin to one another. But because of that, they develop this relationship. And so every two, um, the last two Saturdays of the month, they have what's called Orange Fork Day. They put an orange fork in their lawn, the front lawn, and so all the neighbors around them know that, oh, this is Orange Fork Day. This is free breakfast day. And so this community group puts on this breakfast for their neighborhood. And what has started happening is all the people from the neighborhood started saying, we should have been doing this the whole time. We love this. And community is happening with people inside church and outside church because we long for it, because we're created in the image of God. As a result, there's one man who is a, uh, he's, he was a Jewish man who said, he showed up one day and he said, I know that you're from church. I will never go to your church and I never want to talk to you about Jesus, but I do want to find a couple guys that I could just watch football with on Sunday morning. And so a couple of the guys from the group said, we love football. We'll gladly watch it with you. So they went to his house, and for, I think, six months, they just sat and they watched football with this guy because they liked football, and they wanted to be in this guy's life. As time went by, this man was able to see how these men related to one another, confessed to one another, strengthened one another, encouraged, even sinned against each other, and confessed their weaknesses. And he began to ask his own questions about Jesus. Six months later, he did go to church. And that's not, the, that's not like victory, right? That's not the goal. We want to introduce him to Jesus. But the fact that he said, I will never go. Okay, I'm going to go with you. Why? Because they weren't just trying to preach at him. They were living it amongst themselves and allowing the world to see them imaging a very real living God. But why does it fail in our lives? The reason why it fails is because the second way we need to be restored is not just in our understanding of what community is. The second way we need to be restored is our understanding of what our identity is. Look at verse 7. Then the disciples Jesus loved. That's John writing. He writes this about himself. He has a great sense of identity and self-esteem there said, it's the Lord. Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord. He put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work. There's that weird detail. Jumped into the water and headed to the shore. And the others stayed with the boat. And they're like, what an idiot. And they pulled the loaded net to the shore, for they were only about 100 yards from shore. And when they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Bring some of the fish you just caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard. He's, he's running every which way, and he dragged the net to shore. There was 153 large fish, and yet the net hadn't torn. There's another just interesting detail. This is what I remember. The net didn't tear. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord, and then Jesus served them the bread and the fish. This was the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples since he was raised from the dead. We need our identity restored. Verse 7 almost identically mirrors Luke chapter 5. It's almost the same story. Peter sees these fish 
jumping into the nets, and he's like, I've seen this fish thing before. See, in Luke chapter 5, Jesus told Peter to launch out into the deep a bit. After he was preaching to a crowd of people, he got into Peter's boat, and he said, Peter, why don't you launch out? Peter, being the pro bass fisherman that he was, almost having his TV show, says, I've been fishing all night. You're a rabbi. I'm a fisherman. I know how to fish. Peter says, Jesus says to Peter, just launch out. Peter launches out into the deeper areas, casts out his net where he once tried to before, and fish start jumping into the boat and into the net. And Peter's response, different than here, says, it says he fell on his face, on his knees, and he cried out, literally weeping, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. And yet here, he jumps into the water to swim to Jesus after he's miserably failed. Why? He now understands the gospel of grace. Prior to this, he had been attempting to be his own Lord and Savior, just like you and I all do. And at one point, he even began to use religion and morality as a cover-up for who he really was. This is the breakdown of real community authenticity. Because I want you to get this. Transparency is where we develop intimacy with people and with Jesus. And all of us mask ourselves. We are, all of us, trying to create some sort of cover since the beginning in the Garden of Eden when God calls out to Adam and asks the hard question, what are you doing? Where are you? Just as he calls you and says, what are you doing? Where are you? And we cover ourselves. In this case, for Peter, he was a churchgoer, or he was a part of the church. He did a lot of things in the church. He was around Jesus a lot. He was really fond of him. But in Luke chapter 5, he sees someone greater you know what happens when you come into the presence of somebody greater, more beautiful, more lovely, more wonderful, more uh, uh, stronger than you are? Our tendency is to be like, I'm going to go over here because you make me look bad. And in Luke chapter 5, the majesty of Christ really shines a light into who he really is. And here's the truth. Is that we, we, when you come into the presence and you have an authentic experience with the Lord Jesus Christ, it compels you to respond in extreme ways. See, prior to that, you and I, we set up our own little Jesus props. We set up our own little false saviors. And we are part of church, or we are part of community, or we're in relationship, or we're even around Jesus, and yet we set up our own false saviors. I like Jesus, I even say I love him, and yet there's certain things that really bring me security, that if you were to knock that down, I'm, I'm in the presence, and I'm looking Jesus straight into the eye, I realize I'm in the presence of the living God, and it begins to melt me. But here... Peter jumps to Jesus. Why? Because no longer is his self-esteem and his identity wrapped up in his past performance, his previous ability to do really good. Now it's wrapped up in Jesus' performance and Jesus' ability to live a perfect life on his behalf. 
And he jumps to him and says, I know that man, and he saves me. That's the gospel of grace, that our identity is drawn from not how well we are able to perform, able to obey, how nice people we are, but it's coming from completely Jesus' complete ability to be to live a righteous and holy life on our behalf. We will continue to draw our identity from the things that we do, the way we look, the, how well we behave until we come to the place where I'm repenting of the false idols and saviors, the many Jesuses that I've set up. Now, Thirdly, it wasn't just that, well, before I move on, when Peter jumps and runs to Jesus, he meets Jesus and has a meal with Jesus. Again, the whole idea of the Christian faith is relationship. Peter has a meal with Jesus in this sense. And for Peter, a sinful man who's blown it so bad to sit there now across from Jesus and look him in the eye, And look at the fire of coals. I wonder if he begins to remember the last night that he saw Jesus in the eye and was with the fire of coals when he denied Jesus. Because it was on that night that Peter's identity was completely absorbed in his strength, his ability to follow, to be a self-enabling man. And on that night, also at a meal, Jesus leaned over to Peter. And he said, Peter, Satan has asked for you by name to sift you, plural, all of you, the community of leaders, to sift you as wheat. Peter's response as a self-sustaining man, of course, was, I don't know about them, but I'm a strong man, and I love you, and I'll die for you. Peter, I'll tell you what, before this night's over, you're going to fail three times so bad, it's going to send you into a place where you'll weep, and you wish you never were born, and wonder, how could I have ever done that? You ever been there? You ever been in a place where you just wonder, how could I do that? As a result, of course, Peter denies Jesus three times. He chops off a man's ear. Jesus comes into the garden. Peter chops the man's ear off. He's showing his strength. It's the difference between Peter and John. John would have a prayer meeting for the guy. Peter would chop his ear off. Again, the body of Christ, community, all that stuff, important. But as he, as, he, as, as he now, he shows his strength, but he goes into the courtyard, and there's a little girl saying, weren't you with Jesus? And his self-sufficiency and his self-salvation begins to show up because what? He's been living, he, now he lies, 
and he lies, not just, he doesn't just sin by lying. The reason why he's lying is because there's something more important in his life than Jesus is. And that's his protection. That's his own ability to, to uh, protect himself and sustain himself. And as a result, he denies Jesus three times before a coal of fire. And it's at a coal of fire that Jesus now begins to bring in restoration for Peter. I wonder if you feel like today, would Jesus take me back? Would he restore me? Can I have a, a new identity? Well, that's why Peter runs to Jesus. No longer is he rejecting him, saying, I can't let you see into me, God. Now he's allowing Jesus to see all of him because transparency leads to intimacy. Um, Brennan Manning says of having a meal with Jesus that the ragamuffins, this is from the ragamuffin gospel, um, speaking of all of us, all of us who have just, we feel like our lives are mostly just wrecked most of the time. The ragamuffins discovered that sharing a meal with him was a liberating experience of sheer joy. He freed them from self-hatred, exhorted them not to confuse their perception of themselves with the mystery that they really were. He gave them what they needed more than anything else, encouragement for their lives, and delivered reassuring words such as, do not live in fear, little flock. Don't be afraid. Fear is useless. What is needed is trust. Stop worrying. Cheer up. Your sins are forgiven. If Jesus appeared at your dining room table tonight with knowledge of everything that you are, total comprehension of your life story and every skeleton that you hide in your closet, and if he laid out the real state of your present discipleship with all its hidden agendas and the mixed motives and the dark desires that you have buried in your psyche, you would feel his acceptance and forgiveness. And you'd see the eyes of Jesus looking at you. And you would stand there by the fire that you've denied him at. And you'd begin to be warmed by the very love of God. See, I can stand up here and tell you, you need to be in community. You need a new identity. Here's how you find it. I can guilt you all day long, but you know what really transforms your heart? When you sit by the fire and you feast with Jesus by the very fire that you failed at, and by the fire of the love of God, you, begins to, you begin to sense the extreme warmth of the love of Jesus Christ for you. And you're no longer shying away from all your failures and all your sin because you run to him with it. That's what frees us. That's what puts the thread back together. That's what begins to reweave the fabric of community. Sadly, Manning says, many of us continue to cultivate an artificial identity that the liberating truth of our belovedness fails to break through. So we become grim, fearful, and legalistic. We hide our pettiness and wallow in guilt. We hop and puff to impress God, scramble for brownie points, thrash about trying to fix ourselves. And, life, and, and the life of the gospel is such a joyless fashion that it has little appeal to nominal Christians and unbelievers searching for truth. Our identity has to be restored, friends, over and over because it gets broken again and again. 
we tend to draw it from any place that's gonna, that we can find warmth. And if I'm not warming myself by the fire of the love of God, and my identity is drawing from him, I'm going to draw it from somewhere else. For Peter, at one point, I'm a tough guy. At another point, it was, I'm a leader. And what's ironic is that Peter thought that he would actually be a better leader because his behavior was gonna be better than the people that he was with. It was actually the opposite. He was a better leader because of the wounds that he experienced. Because of the weaknesses that he had, he was a better leader. We also need to be restored, lastly, in our understanding of mission. And that's where Peter is asked the hard questions. And this is where the piercing questions come to you and I. Verse 15, after breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you still say that you love me more than all of these people? More than these men do. Notice he calls him Simon, not Peter, the name he gave him as Rock. Now he's going to him where he is. Now, some people say that because there is a difference in the, in the words that are used here, Jesus says, do you agape me? Peter responds, I phileo you, which means a friendly love. Agape means a deeper type of love. Um, I don't really think that that's the case here because God actually uses the word phileo um, towards Jesus, the father phileos his son. So I don't really think that the, the real thrust of it is that uh, the Greek word is phileo agape. Here's the real thrust of it. Peter is now humbled and has an honest assessment that what I thought was my deep devotion for Jesus, I'm very humbled by how little it really is. And no longer am I saying I'm better than him. I'm better than her. I can't say I'm better than anyone because I failed miserably. He's a humble leader now. But now he's fit for the mission. You and I are called to this mission because in verse 16, verse 15, Jesus then responds to Peter, feed my lambs, Jesus told him. And Jesus repeated the same question. Simon, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. And then a third time, the same amount of times that Peter failed Jesus, he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you, do you, do you love me? Do you love me? And it says Peter is grieved. He's hurt by the question that Jesus would ask him three times. And he said, Lord, I mean, you know everything. You know that I love you. Then Jesus says, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands. I want you to notice that phrase. And others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. And then he told Peter, follow me. The way to real living, to life, not just merely existing, is actually through death. I mean, who would sign up for this? You would never go to like the college fair and be like, uh, I was going to do this, but since you said I could actually be crucified and have somebody stretch out my hands and follow you that way, wow, I'm really torn now. I don't really, 
I got to figure out which career I want. I mean, following Jesus and, and being put to death and having a real hard life, that's pretty appealing, but, you know, I don't really know. The mission that Christ calls you and I to is ultimately a mission of death. And that's why Peter responds like I a lot of times respond, and he turns around and he says, Peter saw the guy who was behind him, John, the disciple who Jesus loved, who's typically a mama's boy in the gospel. He's like, he's always getting it right. Peter's always messing it up. John's like, ah, I got it right again. And, and <laughs> the one who, and I'm the disciple who Jesus loves. I mean, oh gosh, how can he beat that? And so he says, he leans over during supper and he says, or, I mean, the one who leaned over to, and asked Jesus who will betray you, of course, is John. Verse 22, um, Peter says, what about this guy? What about John? Okay, so I know, I know I'm going to get crucified, Lord, but uh, what about him? Like, why does he get to get off easy all the, all the time? I find myself asking this question, too, at times. Pastor G alluded first service to us knowing where we're going in terms of planning a church. I can tell you where it's not. It's not in California. And so my first response a lot of times when I think about how hard that is, because I actually really love California and the death that needs to happen as a result, I immediately say, why does this guy get to be in California? <laughs> like, why do they get to have an easier life than me? But I do that a lot. Because I forget my understanding of the mission of Christ, that he's called us actually to die to restore the community, a city set on a hill, a counterculture of people who know and love Jesus. And when I'm reminded of that, actually, it really makes it more palatable to me. Oh, this is an opportunity for me to worship Jesus through sacrificial living. I can do, I want to do that. But Jesus' response to me, it's kind of comical as a side note. He's there, and, and it's not, here's the humanity part of Jesus. You have the divinity, follow me, do you love me? And, which is also very human, right? I mean, do you, do you love me? God, looking him in the face and saying, but, but do you love me? I mean, I want to know where we stand. And then Peter says, well, what about this guy? And Jesus says, look, if I want him to live the rest of his, li the rest of his life until I come back, don't worry about it. It's like a parent who's, the kid's like, I'm going to get spanked. What about Sally? Hey, don't worry about it. You'll get it too. And Jesus' humanity's there like, you follow me. You look at me. You can't worry about, you don't know what they've gone through or what they're about to go through. You've got to look at me because your mission is unique to you and it's a part of this overall creating this new community. So how do we get there? What's the path to restoration? The problem, of course, is that we have to be restored in our understanding of community, our identity, and mission. But the path there is through rejoicing and repentance. The way that Peter would be able to follow Jesus to, into this place of death is by seeing Jesus stretched out arms on his behalf. In other words, look at, look at verse 18. 
When you were young, you did what you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you. It speaks of the death that he would die. In other words, the sacrifice that he would have to make would be crucifixion, stretching out his hands for the benefit of other people, for the sake of the glory of God. That's a bummer. That's why you ask the question, what about this idiot? But the power came when he saw Jesus' arms stretched out for him. When he saw Jesus at the fire of his failure and the love of God there, he could go through the fire because he saw his Savior go through the fire for him. You and I have got to come back over and over again to the fire of God's love and warm ourselves there by seeing the stretched out hands of Jesus. It gives me the passion and motivation to actually stretch my hands out for you and to sacrifice for others. But to the extent that you see Jesus, his sacrifice for you on the cross, him taking all of the wrath and justice for you, We'll think little. We'll just exist and we'll be in it for ourselves. And then the last way, the last way on this path is through repentance. And notice Jesus doesn't just let Peter off the hook. He actually makes his, him own his, his own fault. When he says, do you love me? He makes him own it. And at that point, Peter realizes you know, I thought it was you that I was loving this whole time. But there's several ways that I was doing it for me. That I did it for some sort of standing, a right standing. I was trying to earn my, my right to you. But now I see that my love for you has been shallow. Do you love me? He says. He says, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. Transparency leads to intimacy. And then he says, I want you to be in charge then, Peter. He actually puts this failed man, this wrecked life, he puts him in charge of the whole movement. When Jesus sees Peter, he sees who he's making him to become. The glorified self. And he says, I want you to feed my sheep and you know, when, Pete, when Jesus looks at you, he sees who he make, he's making you to become because of the cross. Look what he did for Peter. He made him a bold, courageous man, a follower of Jesus to the end of his days, to the day of his death when he says, crucify me up, down, upside down because I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same way as my Lord. He made him bold, courageous, confident in God's love. It happens through repentance. It happens through transparency. Today, I call us to come forward. We take the bread and the cup, which symbolize the death and body and blood of Jesus. And as we do that, we repent of what we've propped up and thought was Jesus, but was a false savior for dead works and also receive the love of God in our soul, saying, you see me as who I will become. What do you see when you look into the eyes of Jesus? What he sees is who he's making you to be through repentance and rejoicing in him. Thank you, Jesus, for the, for the cross. Thank you for the gospel.
which gives us new beginnings and new starts. We come now, we say, we receive the message from your heart. We want to repent of lesser loves and we want to rejoice in your greatest love. 